Why don't you guys join me as we pray, and then let's pursue this fifth skill tonight. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and be, by the power of your spirit, our teacher. Would you help me to say that which would be profitable, helpful, edifying for my brothers and sisters? I pray that this lesson, in other words, would strengthen their faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Learn the story. Have you found it to be true? Oh, how often is this the case? That we tend to lose the forest for the trees. You found that to be true that so often in life you miss the big picture because you're so fixated on small details? That's why it's common for teenagers to scream I hate you to their parents. It's because they have fixated on some narrow grievance and they are lacking the bigger picture and they realize there's overwhelming evidence of mom and dad's love. All they can think about though is that one particular grievance where mom and dad didn't give them what they want and they're inclined to say, I hate you because you hate me. It's insane. It's ridiculous. They have, they're nearsighted. They're myopic. They're missing the big picture. This is why so many fights happen in marriages. So many marriages get derailed over small things. Have you ever found it to be true that one thing that happens in marriages a lot is that mountains tend to be made from little molehills? What started as really small gets really big and it's ridiculous, and that's because so often you lose the greater picture of your spouse's faithfulness or kindness or sacrificial giving, and you just fixate on one particular flaw that you wish would fix, and it becomes all-consuming, and you think, man, that flaw defines them. If you just take a step back and see the bigger picture, you'll realize that you have been missing the grand forest for the trees. This is why people get lost, by the way, in forests all the time. Because if you don't have a bigger picture, a bird's eye view, a map, something that helps you see the whole contours of the forest, you could actually get so lost seeing what appears to be identical trees that this hasn't happened to me, but I've seen it on the news time and again that somebody who's a trained hiker, somebody that knows a lot about the outdoors can get lost and die a half mile from the trail. I heard that about a poor, young, uh, a poor lady, I believe she was in her 60s, who somehow wandered off the trail, the Appalachian Trail, and she died a half mile from the trail because she just kept walking in circles and couldn't find her way back. She lacked the resources to have the bigger picture. And here's the truth. That, by analogy, is a common malady for a lot of Christians when it comes to reading the Bible. Do you realize that it is possible to know the stories of the Bible and not know the story of the Bible? You could be a Sunday school veteran you grew up in RAs and GAs. You know the Bible stories. You can tell me the difference between David and Saul. You know the books of the Bible in order. You can tell me all those prophets' names. But you could actually be stammering and stuttering when it comes to actually telling me the story of the Bible. Have you forgotten that the Bible is actually not like a pearl necklace, all these little tiny stories strung together, it's actually one great grand narrative. Do you know that the Bible actually is a cohesive piece of literature? It tells a grand big story. Remember with me that ultimately, and you'll notice this in your notes, that the Bible actually does have one ultimate author. You're initially thinking, Kyler, wait a minute, the Bible has 66 books. 
and you've told me before that it has 39 to 40 authors. How can you say that's all one big story? You've forgotten that there is one who superintended all those human authors. There is, in other words, what some might describe as dual authorship. There was Paul, but who wrote the Bible with Paul? The Spirit of God. There was John, but who wrote the Bible with John? The Spirit of God. Who is the great common denominator between all the authors from Moses all the way down to John the Revelator in Revelation? The Spirit of God, that one ultimate author, superintended it all. So that's the first piece of evidence we need to consider when we question, what is the story of which I speak? Well, this story that I'm describing, it has one author, the Spirit of God, from the beginning to the end, superintending it all. Consequently, it's probably not a surprise to you that this one author has one ultimate purpose. You know the Bible doesn't have a bunch of little purposes. It's not like a shotgun where it just let her rip and there's just all these little shot marks everywhere. The Bible actually does have one great purpose throughout. Now there is actually some debate on what this purpose is. So instead of me just kind of framing it the way I want and you taking my word for it, how about I just punt and let's have Jesus address it. You know Jesus actually does this for us. Jesus Upon resurrecting from the dead, he famously in Luke 24 appears incognito to a couple disciples on this ancient road to a little town called Emmaus. And on this road to Emmaus, as he's speaking to these two disciples in Luke 24, it says he does something remarkable, something the world had never seen. He takes out the Old Testament, the Bible says, and he starts to explain it. But he does it in a way no rabbi, no scribe, no Pharisee or Sadducee ever had. It says in Luke 24 that Jesus begins to show them how every part of the Old Testament pointed to him. Nobody had heard that before. Jesus was proving for us that the Bible from start to finish has one purpose and I'll say it as simply as I know how, it points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Have you forgotten the Bible has one author? It has one purpose. I want you to think of it this way. We've been talking about context, how important context is. So there's the context of a word, which is a sentence. But if you want to make sense of a sentence, you need to look at the context of the paragraph. But if you want to make sense of the paragraph, you might want to look at the context of the passage. But then if you need more context... You might want to look at the context of the chapter or then the book, maybe of the Testament, the whole, whole New Testament. But did you realize there actually is one wider final context to it all? This is going to sound impossible, but in a very real sense, you should interpret any particular verse with reference to the widest context possible. And that is the whole context of the Bible. The whole Bible actually sets a great context for you. The Bible never contradicts itself. It always uh, helps interpret itself. You need to think when you're reading a given passage, how does this particular passage fit in the whole story of the Bible? Which brings me to my fourth point, And this is what I want to tease out with you. I'm going to camp here for a moment. Have you forgotten that the Bible that has one context and one author and one purpose, it really does ultimately have one great storyline. There's a story. I wonder how many of you in this room could tell me it. 
If somebody asked you, what's the story of the Bible? This is rhetorical, so no need to raise hands. How many of you would find yourself getting a little insecure because you're like, all right, he made everything, Adam and Eve. Uh, I remember Cain and Abel was thrown in there, and the flood came, and was the flood before Babel or Babel the flood? I think it was flood then Babel, and I don't know. I remember there were some kings and the, all these names I can't pronounce, and then Jesus comes, and then there's some apostles, and heaven and earth are coming. That's kind of the storyline, right? That's, that's a good uh, stab that a lot of people take. But do you realize, and I want to just very briefly, I want, I'm going to tell you this. This is not mine prepared, by the way. I have no notes on this. This is me trying to get, make it as real as I can to you so that you can understand this is something you can actually internalize. I know a lot of you right now could tell me the plot of your favorite movie in probably more detail than you would be willing to admit. It's, in other words, it's not hard for us to actually retain plot lines when you know and love the story. And there really is a story to the Bible that's all connected so that no longer does the book Habakkuk mean nothing to you. You'll actually start realizing, now I get why Habakkuk is there. The story of the Bible begins with one God. There is a God who existed, nothing else did. He spoke and all the world came into being. And the Bible says that this God who spoke all things into being spoke one thing in particular that was greater than all else. Humans made in his image, capable to have a relationship with him. But horrifically, tragically, it says that that pinnacle of his creation rebelled against him. Adam and Eve bought a lie from that evil serpent, that high created angel, Lucifer, Satan himself, the great accuser of mankind. Adam and Eve bought a lie and in that moment they sinned, the world cracked in half. God said, because he's a holy, righteous, and just God, that he must punish mankind, the pinnacle of his creation, for their sin. But what's so interesting about the Bible is it doesn't end in Genesis 3 when sin enters, and it could and should. The Bible really should be three chapters long with an exclamation point at the end of his curse of sin, and then none of us should exist. But what's so astonishing is in verse 15 of Genesis 3, God preaches the gospel for the very first time. He makes a promise that one day he is going to send somebody to crush the head of that serpent. Somebody's going to come and do to Satan what he deserved. God could have snapped his fingers, but he chose not to. He chose a different way. In his infinite wisdom, he designed that there was going to be a long process by which he would come and deliver his people from the curse of sin. There was going to be a long path through which he was going to free his people. He was going to save his people. He was going to redeem his people. How would he do this? The rest of the Old Testament is one long story trying to figure out who's going to be the guy. Who's going to be the one to fulfill God's great promise? Is it going to be their son, Cain? Not, not Cain. He kills his brother, Abel. Abel can't because he's dead now. And Cain got kicked out of uh, Eden, and he's now off in the land of Nod. So then they have another son, Seth. Is Seth going to be the one to save God's people? Well, it ends up not being Seth. It ends up not being Seth's family because the Bible actually tells us come Genesis 6, it got so bad that God finally wiped his hands clean and said, you know what? This world is too messed up. I'm going to flood the whole thing and start over. Noah is the only one that even obeys me. He's the only one that considers me as worthy of worship. I'm going to save Noah and his family in this boat, and I'm going to kill everybody and everything else. And that's exactly what he does. He starts over, and in Genesis 6 through 9, he does basically a recreation of the world. 
Then once he lets Noah get down on the ground, guess what happens next? He tells Noah, I want you to go fill the world with people who worship me. And the next thing Noah does is he goes against drunk and naked, it appears. It's a really crazy story. And then he disobeys. And all of Noah's family, instead of spreading out all over the world, what do they do? They come and build a nice tower on this beautiful piece of property together. They build this tower. We know it as the Tower of Babel. A lot of historians surmise that the tower was built because they thought if God floods the world again, we'll just climb up in the tower and escape the floods. It'll be above the mountains. Or it could have just merely been an exercise in showing that they are, you know, great amongst all the peoples of the world. Nevertheless, they disobeyed, and so God forced them to obey by confusing their language. They scatter all over the world, and here's where it gets insane. God still has a promise to keep. Is he going to save the world through somebody? Well, he picks the least likely person you would expect. He goes, and it almost seems like he arbitrarily eeny, meeny, miny, mows it. He finds one man, a man named Abram of Ur, a idol maker, not the guy you'd expect. And he tells this man, Abram, in Genesis 12, I am going to save the world through your family. One day, somebody's going to come from your family and bless the whole world. By the way, who is Abram's family? We call Abram's family Israel. Israel are the people that came from Abram. Abram is not the Messiah, though. He ends up being a liar, and he doesn't do great stuff. Abram has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has 12 sons, his most famous son of which is named Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. They run out of food. They all go down to Egypt. They stay a while. In fact, they like Egypt because, you know, brother's in charge. But then something bad happens. After 400 years, no longer are they the king's They end up becoming the slaves, and now they're crying, wondering, is God going to keep his promise? He told us that he was going to use us to save the world, and we're all slaves down here in Egypt, until at last God raises up one. There's one Israelite that he raises up, Moses, drawn from the water, Moses. Moses is the one God uses to free them. So Moses does free them. He does all the plagues. They get out of Egypt. They go through this crazy crossing of the Red Sea. They start wandering in the wilderness. And now they're thinking, you know what? He thought, we thought he was the Savior, but this sure doesn't feel like salvation. We're wandering around 40 years endlessly in this wilderness. This doesn't feel like the promised land that we were told we were going to have. In fact, Moses gets barred from going into the promised land because Moses didn't obey God. It's amazing how the Bible is filled with people just like you and me. We all have clay feet. These are not superheroes. They finally get into the promised land. They cross the Jordan River after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, but they run into some obstacles. The first one is Jericho. They marched around those walls. Those walls come a-tumbling down. They have to defeat some major cities. God says, I want you to drive out all these wicked people in the land that hate me, that are sacrificing their children, that are worshiping demons, the Canaanites. They drive them all out for the most part, but they leave some of them in. How is much is that like you and I, where we resist sin except a little bit? We, lo- we hate all that excess gross sin, but there's pet sins we like to keep close. Israel did that in the promised land. And the Bible says, give it a generation. That which you just tolerated, you're now going to love. And that's what Israel did. They started to love their sin. They started to act just like the people in the land. And so finally, God sent some judges to help them obey him. But the judges didn't really work. Y'all remember some of those judges like Samson and Deborah, etc.? They didn't really work. And finally, all the people started throwing a fit and said, we want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. But God said, you don't need a king because I'm your king. You should 
trust me to be your ruler. But he gave the people what they wanted, which is a common theme in God. He tends to give us over to the lusts of our flesh, and he gives them the king they wanted. It was not a godly man. It was not an honorable man. It was a strong, strapping, tall leader. It was the quintessential U.S. president figure. It was Saul, a head and shoulder above all the rest. But Saul proved to not be a good man. Saul actually disobeyed God such that God literally rejects him as king. The Bible says it explicitly. I have rejected you as king, Saul, and I am going to choose a man after my own heart, and it is the least likely one you would expect. That's another theme in the Bible, isn't it? God tends to choose that which you wouldn't expect. He chooses the runt of the litter. He chooses the scrawny brother, David, and says, David, you are going to be the one through whom I keep my promise. David becomes king. David ends up becoming the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus himself. David is the one through whom Jesus would come. David is the great king. David does a lot of wicked sin, as you well know, but he repents of it, which is great hope for all of us. If you want to be a man after God's own heart, it doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you repent. That is the spirit of a man after God's own heart. It's one who sees their sin, hates their sin, and pleads the mercy of God. That is what David did. David's next, uh, his successor was Solomon, which I always found it funny that Solomon was regarded as the wisest man on God's green earth, and then he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He did a lot of unwise things, and consequently, God ends up saying, because of your wickedness, Solomon, I am going to split the kingdom in half into the north and into the south. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom got a new name, Judah. And those two kingdoms begin to fall apart. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, guess what it basically is? Y'all ever read the minor prophets? All those prophets, like Daniel, that's a major prophet. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Let's start with Isaiah. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All those prophets basically have one message. (laughs) And their message is, Israel, repent. Turn from your wicked ways and trust Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they almost never do it. Or if they do, it's for a season. But they keep going back to their sin like a dog returns to its vomit, the Bible says. And God eventually judges them for not obeying him. He sends the mighty nation of Assyria to come uh, and conquer the northern kingdom in the year 722 B.C. By the way, that's a literal historical date that unbelievers will say is true. Assyria destroys the northern kingdom. You can read about this in the Old Testament. In the year 586, several hundred years later, the southern kingdom gets destroyed by Babylon. You can read about that in world history too. And the two nations are gone. And instantly, the people of God that are left, the remnant, those who got carried away by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, into exile. Nebuchadnezzar didn't kill them. He took them with him to his homeland, modern-day Iraq, Iran. They wonder, is God going to keep his promise? God promised to save the world through us. We've lost everything. God has probably given up. And God in his grace sends a few more prophets to them. He sends Daniel. He sends Ezekiel. And those men promise him, No, trust God. He is going to bring you back. He's going to use the person you least expect. He's going to use a pagan king named Cyrus to get you back home. And that happens. And Ezra and Nehemiah lead God's people back to the promised land where they build a new temple because the first one had been destroyed. And from that day forward, they start to practice their faith again. 
And then guess what happens? Silence. It's so weird. After God brings his people back from exile and they rebuild the temple, the next page in your Bible after Malachi, who is the last prophet to come to them, is a blank page in your Bible. It's called the intertestamental period. It's a 400-year period where there is no prophet who comes to God's people until at last after 400 years of silence. By the way, during those 400 years, a lot happens. A lot in world history, a lot in Jewish history. That's where the Pharisees and Sadducees develop. That's where synagogues come into play. All the Judaism we know about with Jesus happened, developed during those 400 years of silence. All of a sudden, the silence is broken. It says there's a voice as one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It is John the Baptist whom God has chosen to be the forerunner to the promised Messiah at last. John the Baptist is, in other words, breaking the silence and saying, at last, the one God promised some 2,000 plus years ago is at last here. In the fullness of time, God gave his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem, as Isaiah prophesied. At last, he's here, and he is going to fulfill everything that God promised in the Old Testament. He is going to show why God set up that crazy sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Now it all makes sense. Now we know why we've been doing all these insane killings for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years. Now we know why the millions upon millions upon millions of gallons of blood that have been poured out at the altar in the temple, we get it because it was reminding us that there was going to be one who would finally come and pour out his blood once and for all, the final sacrifice that was going to be made at last, ending it fully, finally, and completely, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus is Three years of public ministry proved for us a couple things. He lived the life you and I could never live. He did what Adam and Eve and every person that's come from them was unable to do. He died the death that we deserved. He took the punishment that the Bible says all of us deserve for our sin. And then he did a third thing. He did what no person has been able to do. All of us, 100% of us, will die. Zero percent of us will rise from the dead. And Jesus did. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, which was God's great sign telling us, I accepted this guy's death as payment for everybody's sin because this guy, unlike the rest of you, never sinned. He was no mere man. He was the great God-man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my Lord and yours. Jesus raises from the dead. He tells all the disciples, this isn't the end. You have a job to do now. All people who bear my name must go tell the whole world who I am because my glory is going to cover the world as the waters cover the seas. Go tell people who I am and I am coming back soon. And we find ourselves in that weird period waiting for the day when he will return. It has not happened yet. There's only one thing we know. Two things I should say we know. We know what the apostles taught us. Those were the ones who saw Jesus with their own two eyes. They taught us more, which is most of the New Testament. And we know the great prophecy that he gave John at the end of the Bible, the revelation of how this is all going to end. And we do know it's going to end at least like this. There's a lot of debates on how the ends are going to work out. You might be a premillennialist. You might be a postmillennialist. You might be an amillennialist. You've heard the old joke, most of us are pan-millennialists. It's going to pan out one way or the other. I'll tell you this. We do know this. There's coming a day when at last he is going to recreate the world like the very first chapter of the Bible, Garden of Eden. 
The world is going to be remade. There is going to be paradise on earth, heaven on earth, so to speak, and we will at last do what we were made to do, worship freely and perfectly the one for whom we were made. Friends, do you realize that I just told you by memory, and it's not because I have a good memory, and it's not because I, I prepared this pitch to impress you. This is in me. I could have said this when I was a 15-year-old because this is the great story of the Bible. Now, you're thinking, Kyler, you sell yourself short. I would not be able to do that. And I promise you, you can. It may not be as, you know, eloquent or performance-driven, but you could tell me the basic contours of the story of the Bible if you commit yourself to familiarize yourself with it. Because I know if I got to know you and I knew your favorite TV show, you could tell me the basic plot line. You could tell me the main characters. You could probably tell me details that no person should know about those characters. You could tell me about particular episodes, particular scenes. It's actually amazing how much you can know when you care. So I want you to consider with me that you need to get the big story of the Bible so that you can make sense of all the little stories of the Bible. Let me give you three brief reasons why this is so relevant to your study. You might think this is pie in the sky, not really necessary to know the story of the Bible. There really are a few reasons why you need to know it. One of the reasons why is because when you do this, it actually is going to help you see what you've been missing. It's going to help you recognize that so often when you read the Bible, you're just reading a little isolated story and you're not realizing how it fits into the bigger picture. How many of you read Daniel in the Lion's Den and you think it's nothing more than a tale about courage? And that is not what it's about. If you actually saw the story of Daniel in the Lion's Den in the context of the great story, you'd start realizing that God had this happen for a most profound reason. It'll show you what you're missing. You'll start realizing that little stories are not just little stories. They are parts of the great story, the big story. It'll show you what you're missing. It's also going to show you what you've been misunderstanding. I want you to see that, that when you're studying the Bible, a couple things can happen. You'll start putting emphases on stories that shouldn't be there. For example, you read the story of Hosea. The story of Hosea is odd. Because God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. And I have heard a man say that is why it's okay for him to have married an unrepentant prostitute as a Christian. Now, why? we all know that's ridiculous. But why is it ridiculous? Because God told a prophet to do it. Why wouldn't he be okay with you doing it? Well, you have forgotten the context of the whole Bible. That the reason God told Hosea to marry a prostitute was not because he was good with that. It was actually to make a most stark warning to the people of God about how unfaithful they have been to him and how faithful he is to them, though we prostitute ourselves. You know the Bible uses the most explicit sexual language to describe our unfaithfulness. It says we were whoring after other gods, lusting after other gods. That's why he tells Hosea to do this. This is why one of the things that we often misunderstand when we read the Bible is, for example, how many of you have been reading the Bible and you start choking when you read about God driving all the Canaanites out of the land? You're like, man, this just doesn't feel like meek and mild Jesus because Yahweh is telling them to kill all the men, women, and children. And I just don't understand how that God comports with that God. Well, if you just read it in isolation, it should make your stomach turn until you recognize how that story fits in the great 
big story, and only then will you start to appreciate why God had to say that. Why a just God, a good God, a righteous God must make that declaration. You only will get it if you take a step back and see the bigger picture. In other words, learning the story is not only going to help you see what you're missing, it's going to help you see what you've been misunderstanding. Thirdly and finally, I want you to consider with me that it's going to help you see what you have been misapplying. Here's what often happens in Bible study. How many of you can be like me? And instead of doing exegesis, exegesis means you get out of the text what's there, you do what has been jokingly been called narcissus. You read it and it's all about you. Narcissist as we are. You read the Bible and all you can think of is promise to me. Yeah, that speaks to me. I see me there. You know what? I've been strong. I am like Daniel. I am going to dare to be a Daniel just like that guy. Or you see some particular character like, thank God that I am not like Bathsheba. Or I can't believe that Noah would have done that. The problem is that is not the point of the Bible. One of the benefits of remembering the story when you interpret any passage is you got to remember that the Bible is actually not centered on us in any meaningful sense at all. The Bible is, as you might expect, centered on who? It's on Christ himself. Christ is the purpose of the Bible. He told us that in Luke 24, that the whole Bible points to him. So if you can remember that every passage is actually more focused on Jesus than it is on you, it's actually going to probably change the way you interpret any given passage. You'll go back to uh, one of these given passages like Homer, I mean uh, uh, Hosea and Gomer and start realizing, okay, this actually isn't about me having license to kind of do what I want. This is actually a story telling me just how unfaithful I am. I'm actually the prostitute in this story. I'm not Hosea. I'm the one that's been unfaithful, and God is a faithful spouse to me like uh, Hosea was. That's going to help you rightly interpret the Bible. So let's conclude our evening tonight then by addressing the practical how. How do you do this? Tomorrow morning, you're going to say, Kyler told me I need to learn the story. I don't remember anything he said in that 10-minute dialogue about the story. The YouTube video hasn't been posted yet, so I don't know. I can't listen to that. Well, I'll just wait till the next day, and maybe I'll try to learn the story tomorrow. There is a simple way to do this, okay? Here's how I want you to start. Let's think in terms of TV shows. How many of you guys like to watch TV shows that have multiple episodes? Anybody like a TV show person? Lauren and I, we prefer to watch shows than movies. Well, when it comes to TV shows, you should know this, that pretty much any TV show that's worth watching has what's called a plot. And a plot is basically one big, giant storyline. There's typically a storyline. Not every show does. Some shows, you can almost watch the episodes individually, and they rarely have anything to do with one another. Typically, it's like detective-type shows. Like, if you like the whodunit murder shows, oftentimes there's no big arc. But most sitcoms, most drama shows, it's a big story. You're going to have to devote a lot of hours on Netflix to figure out the story, but there's a big story. Do you realize you can very simply frame any passage you're reading in the big story or plot of the Bible? Let me give you two ways to frame the plot. Write this down if you're taking notes. I'm going to give you the simplest way, which won't be that helpful, and I'll give you the most common way, which might be a little more helpful. The simplest way some people describe it is as this. You could summarize the plot of the Bible with two phrases. Promises made and promises kept. The Old Testament, for lack of a better word, is a bunch of stories about promises God made 
And the New Testament, for lack of a better word, is a bunch of stories about God keeping those promises. He made promises to save people. The New Testament shows us how he fulfills them. Here's a better way, though. This is the way that is most common. You'll see this in a lot of books. You could frame it as creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Let me say it another way. The story of the Bible is God made everything. Everything fell apart. We fall, we fail, we sinned against God. God promised to redeem us. He's going to redeem, save his people. And one day he's going to make all things new. Heaven is coming one day. That is the great story of the Bible. So when you're reading a given story, let's take David and Goliath, for example. Everybody knows David and Goliath. And what's embarrassing is young preachers in seminary, when they preach David and Goliath, almost always screw it up because they forget the big story of the Bible. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever heard a pastor preach David and Goliath and they say something like, you need to slay the giants in your life? Or what are your five smooth stones that you can defeat your enemy with? Or don't think of yourself as small. You're mighty in God's eyes. You can do it. You can defeat. Be like David. Face your fear. Go slay the giants. Now, that is not good preaching because it has forgotten where that story falls in the great story of the Bible. You've got to remember that the story of David and Goliath is not about courage or slaying giants. The story of David and Goliath is basically a vivid tale in the middle of the story of the Bible. God made everything, everything fell apart, and he's promised to save everybody. And in the middle of the Old Testament, there's all these stories of guys that you think are going to be the one God uses, and God uses the one you would least expect to save. God makes this man be the one that frees Israel from the Philistines so that the world would know that there is a David in Israel. Do you all remember what David says? David looks at all of the cowering uh, warriors and says, I am going to go face Goliath so that the world may know that there is a God in Israel. In other words, David was not the one who looked impressive. God looked impressive when it was all said and done. David and Goliath is a story about God's glory, God doing what no man, woman, or child can do. This is why the big story of the Bible matters. You've got to remember that at this point in the story, God is saving, not people. Now, here's the thing. Most of you like to watch TV shows for more than just the grand plot. You could go online and figure out the plot, maybe on Twitter. It doesn't take much work to figure out the, the plot. Most of you are going to want to watch the seasons. Most shows have multiple seasons. So let's consider now when you're reading the Bible, you should think not just in terms of the big overall plot, but think about the particular seasons of the Bible. So I don't want to stretch this analogy too far, but for example, you know, if you're in a particular favorite TV show, typically a season has one big storyline or theme. And then the next season usually changes. Usually the season ends with some big cliffhanger, which gets you hooked to the next one. And then there's a whole new storyline. Sometimes there's even new characters. So too in the Bible. Have you guys noticed when you read the Bible, there are themes that tend to be repeated again and again? For example, covenant. You hear that word a lot. Temple. You hear that word used all throughout the Bible. Or maybe you see the theme of redemption, like the word redemption, which means like exchange money, paying something. Or atonement, which is a bloody word. It, you hear it all the time. You can actually start thinking about any passage you're reading in terms of the great theme 
throughout the whole Bible. So if you're reading a passage that talks about the temple, one good way to make sense of that passage is what other texts in the Bible talk about the temple? And where does this fit in the story? Does this passage have something unique to say about the temple? Look at it in terms of its whole season, its whole theme, which the internet is filled with resources to help you figure out, okay, now I understand why David was in the lion's den. Because lions is actually an odd theme throughout the Bible. And now I'm going to make sense of why Daniel ended up getting thrown into that den of lions. You can trace out the whole theme. Consider the season. Now, most of us don't have the time, and if you do, shame on you, to watch the whole season in one sitting. Though I feel like Lauren and I have come close to on some rainy Saturday Netflix binges. Typically, you watch shows in segments. We call those episodes, right? So let's consider the episode. What would be the episode? Well, an episode, for lack of a better word, would be a chunk of the Bible. What is happening historically in the Bible right now? So, for example, you read the story of the Tower of Babel, and you want to make sense of what's going on there. Well, you got to remember what's happening in the story broadly. What's that episode, so to speak, all about? Well, the first episode was God made the world perfect. The second episode was everybody screwed, Adam and Eve screwed it up. Everything fell apart. The third episode is God uh, ended up destroying the world through the flood with Noah. Now there's a new episode. And the new episode is God is going to make them obey by spreading out all over the known world. Now I know why this story's here. This story is actually showing how he does it. This is not a story about don't build tall buildings. Or this is not a story about how the plain of Shinar is an evil place. Or this is not a story about why all the languages being confused is a sign of the devil in the world. It is actually just a story illustrating how God was going to make his people obey by spreading them out all over the known world. That's why looking at the episodes matters, which can finally get you to the given scene. Let's say you're reading a story of the Bible. Let's go back to David and Goliath. David and Goliath is in 1 Samuel 17. And let's say you're studying 1 Samuel 17 and you get to verse 50 or so. And in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 50, you read this verse. And this verse talks about David defeating Goliath, not with a sword, but with stones. And you're just reading that story in isolation, that little verse in isolation. And you're like, you know what my takeaway is? You shouldn't use a sword. Really, you should use stones. In fact, I think the U.S. military would be more successful if they used stones. Now, some people interpret the Bible that way, which is insane. But the truth is, you have forgotten the context of the scene itself. There's an actual story going on in this scene, and if you just take one tiny step back, you'll realize that verse is not giving you a principle. It's merely reporting a fact that David defeated Goliath in a way that nobody would have expected. He didn't keep Saul's armor on. He didn't use Saul's sword. Instead, he took five smooth stones from a brook and he slung those stones and that stone hit Goliath It knocked him out and then he took Goliath's own sword and cut his head off and that's what killed the man. The story, in other words, the scene, in other words, will help you understand a simple verse. Now, I know this is ridiculous, but let's just bring it all back home and remember. When it comes to understanding the Bible, you can't just read a verse in isolation. You can't just read little verses and make it say what you want. 
you got to think, what does this mean in light of the bigger story? Before I pray and introduce our moderator, let me just commend a few resources to you to help you make sense of it all. At the end of your notes, I gave you a whole list of resources that I commend. The first several are adult books, so if you're an avid reader, consider one of those. But here's one I want every last one of you to go buy. Look at the last two books, and you're going to be shocked I'm commending these. Do you want to know what I think are two of some of the greatest resources for adults to read? I think every last one of you, the most educated amongst you, should go purchase the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is for kids. I read it to Eliza last night. Go pick it up and read it yourself. It is tremendous. In the simplest, beautiful, kid-like language, it is going to tell you the whole story of the Bible. Read it. I have seen college pastors use this to disciple college students, and it is so helpful. Or go get The Biggest Story. It's by Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in Charlotte, actually. He pastors Christ's Covenant down at Matthews. He wrote a story that basically tells the whole story of the Bible in story form. Get it? You can read it to your children or grandchildren, and then you can privately, without anybody looking, have it next to your Bible in the morning and read it, and it is going to help you make sense of the great story. Oh, my friends, I pray that as you consider your study, your understanding of God's Word, you'll not only learn to see and read and know the context and the background, but you will learn with me the great big story, and in so doing, make sense of all those little stories. Why don't you join me as we pray? And when I say amen, I'll invite up our moderator for a most brief church conference. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and for the grace we have to study it in a room like this. And I pray for these brothers and sisters that they would indeed be men and women of the word, that they would be found as you have commanded us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, that they would do their best to present themselves to you as approved workmen who have no need to be ashamed, rightly handling your word of truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.